In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Kara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. And we are obsessed with flipping puberty positive. Puberty is a stage of life best described as a roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts. It happens to literally every human being on earth. And it shouldn't be cringy. It should feel, you know, pretty comfortable. Which is why we started this podcast and a newsletter and why we film slightly ridiculous but informative social media videos. It's why we have a brand that makes clothes that literally feel so comfortable and why we write books too. Our latest is This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We have built a universe of puberty positivity and it all started with this podcast. We are so happy that you're here. Vanessa, it's time to talk about anxiety, and I'm really, really glad that we're doing it on this podcast episode. We have a wonderful guest, but before we introduce her, I want to read a quote from an article that came out in the American Psychological Association in October of 2022. So there's some newer data still, but I think this speaks very loudly to why we are tackling anxiety on this particular episode. So this is an article written by Tori DeAngelis. If anyone wants to look it up, it's called Anxiety Among Kids is on the Rise. And this is how it opens. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, growing numbers of young people were experiencing high rates of clinical level anxiety. About 11.6% of kids had anxiety in 2012, up 20% from 2007. But during the pandemic, those numbers nearly doubled, such that 20.5% of youth worldwide now struggle 
with anxiety symptoms, according to a meta-analysis of 29 studies reported in JAMA Pediatrics in 2021. Besides COVID-related stressors like social isolation, missed milestones, and increased family tension, background stressors such as school shootings, political unrest, and the war in Ukraine have likely fueled these increases. Amy was introduced to us by a whole range of people we love and respect who said, you want someone to come talk about anxiety and how to manage it? Have Amy Kelly on that podcast. You will hear about Amy's innovative approach to giving caregivers tools and strategies for helping the kids in their lives manage their anxiety. And we know this is a really weighty issue for so many of you and have no doubt that this episode will be helpful to you all. Amy, it is so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. There's like 4 million people who connected us to you and who know you and who all love you. And our listeners will be able to understand why by the end of this episode. But if you could just start, I mean, everyone knows you're a licensed clinical social worker, now in private practice, previously working in the schools. But if you could just tell a little bit of the story of your journey, and then we can dive into some specifics. Sure, sure. And again, I'm really happy to be here. So thanks for having me. So I've been doing this work in one way or another for over 25 years. I started out, you know, right out of college, I started doing some work in the clinical realm of working for a big healthcare company and found myself in social work school pretty quickly. And I had this opportunity uh, once I was done with social work school to decide what was sort of my next step. Did I want to go into private practice or did I want to go into schools? I really kind of found schools accidentally back in those days. There was actually like a newspaper you looked at to be able to find jobs. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> Imagine. I don't even sure if all the parents listening would even know about that. But And I happened to see a position at a school. I happened to be pregnant at the time. And I was like, well, that sounds like maybe that fits my lifestyle. And little did I know once I got into schools, I would be in schools for about 20 years. But so I got into schools and working in schools as a counselor. And the piece I really loved about that is how collaborative it was, right? I got to be able to work with outside professionals. I got to work with teachers who are just like the most amazing people in the world. I got to work with parents. And most importantly, I got to work with kids. I, I mostly worked with teenagers, but also did some younger ages too. And then after about 20 years of working in schools, someone called me and said, we're starting this intensive outpatient program and we would love for you to help us out and get get that going. And it was really interesting to me to do that because part of my work in schools is I also did a lot of programming and I did a lot of work around drugs and alcohol and putting programming around that. I did a lot around consent and sexual assault. I did a lot of service work. I did a lot of other sort of programming. I had a whole parent education series that that I ran. So it seemed really interesting. So two years ago, I left schools to become the clinical director at an intensive outpatient program. And with Jennifer Weaver, where I work now, 
we developed an intensive outpatient program for teens. And one of the things that we felt like was really important was no teen could be there without a parent also participating because we know how important families are. And then from there, once we got that up and running, I came over to Weaver and Associates to be the director of clinical programming over here. And so now I primarily work with parents, although some teens also, but primarily I work with parents and help get the programming uh, going over here. And all the way along, I've had like a small private practice and consulting with different schools and practices. So you've been boots on the ground as the arc of mental health has shifted. (laughs) I mean, right. You're like in it over the last quarter of a century. (laughs) There are a lot of reasons that we invited you on this podcast. This is one of them. That is gold that you were on the front lines of this in schools, in practice, and you continue to be, and as a parent raising her own kids, can you use your very special lens, your multi-layered lens, to help us to understand a little bit about the epidemic of depression and anxiety? Because we are all reading what's being put out, showing you know, study after study that more kids and adults are falling into the diagnostic category of being depressed or being anxious. But from someone who really has a front row seat, how big has this problem become or is it overblown? Mm -hmm. It's not overblown. That's for sure. It's big. It's intense. It is palpable. You know, I started my career before 9-11. And if you think about, um, at least I'm in the DC area. And so, you know, 9-11 hit. And a couple of years later, we had all the snipers in our area. We've had some major sort of environmental catastrophes. We've had the cell phone come on, (laughs) you know, on play here. But life has changed as we know it over some real critical years not just for kids, but for parents. And so how we engage in parenting has shifted over these years and the world for kids have shifted over the years. And the environmental landscape has shifted, the political landscape has shifted, the sort of family and social landscape has shifted. And the truth is anxiety and depression, the rate that we were seeing even before the pandemic was increasing. And even before the pandemic, there were organizations popping up to really help talk about like, what's the rat race that we're in, that our kids are in? You know, there's this great out of Stanford's School of Education, Challenge Success. You know, I think I was talking to them 10, 15 years ago, even, Mm -hmm. And talking about what what's going on, even with the college admissions process and how that's driving life for, for so many teens and younger kids. And the truth is, over these years, the kids who we're hearing about who are having even suicidal thoughts or or even attempts or or real intent in some way is getting younger and younger and younger. And we're also learning more. We know more about autism. We know more about eating disorders. We know more about depression, about ADHD. I mean, 25 years ago, like you hardly talked even about ADHD the way that you do now. 
And same with anxiety and depression. So we just also know more and we know also how treatable all these different things are. And also there's more, the social media piece is allowing everyone to connect on these things in a broader way, but also in a deeper way. And so it's allowing people to have conversations in a way that people didn't years ago. I mean, when I started in schools, it would be sort of like quietly, oh, you know, Miss Kelly, can we, can I come see you? And my office was literally down a hall, like tucked away. And then when I moved to my, the last school where I worked, it was kind of central and kids mm. would yell down the hall to me, Amy, are we going to, am I going to see you <laughs> during fourth period? I was like, oh yeah, I guess. And, and so it just it really changed. People were able to talk about these things. But the pendulum is sort of swinging. And so it is increasing and the intensity is increasing. But we're now sort of at this point where I think we have to really think about how we're addressing it. Because I think parents now inadvertently are sort of walking on eggshells around these things and are worried about you know, really wanting to protect their children because the world is kind of wild out there and it's and it can be kind of scary. And so inadvertently, I think we are, at least around anxiety, kind of fostering a little bit more anxiety, again, totally accidentally and actually done out of like love and care, but it's it's sort of building up when I don't think that's our intention. So let's talk about that a little bit because... Seeing our children in pain, seeing Mm -hmm. our children struggle is, for my experience, the hardest thing to go through. There Mm -hmm. is nothing more painful to me than watching my kid have a hard time, have a really hard time. That's right. And if I can, you know, prevent it, fix it, change it, shift Mm -hmm. it, if I could fix it in any way possible... I would do that. I give my right arm to keep my kid from feeling pain. And yet, <laughs> we know that that's like actually not what we need to be doing and not the solution. So, Amy, if you would talk about why it's not and why it's important yeah. for our kids to struggle and move through that. And then I want to talk more specifically about your unique work. But first, Let's talk a little bit about why it's important for kids to struggle. And to understand that piece, just to take one second, just to talk about anxiety specifically. Yep. Just to be clear, not all anxiety is bad, right? Like we actually want to have some anxiety. You don't want someone to be able to go to the edge of a cliff and not feel the fear of falling off. You want that anxiety. You want to go to a job interview or go into a test with a little bit of anxiety. It gets you focused. It gets you clear. It gets you sort of motivated. That all is good. I think a lot of what has happened and why I think we've jumped into sort of this overprotection that sometimes happens is a confusion between like little a anxiety and big a anxiety, right? Like the little bit of, or even maybe a lot. I mean, I know when I feel anxious about something, I can feel it in my body. It can physically feel painful to me, but I can also, once I go through it, then it goes away. Then I I can sort of move on. Big a anxiety is when it holds on with you for much longer past the moment. 
And what ends up happening to get to your to your question about why it's not so helpful, you know, we find that there's two different kinds of parents out there. Now, this is like a gross only two. Yeah, this is a gross <laughs> generalization, right? But there's there's like two kinds of parents when it comes to anxiety that we find oftentimes. One is the protective parent who's sort of like, my kid's in so much pain. Why would I want to make things harder for them? I don't think they can do it. Like how much more can they take on? And then there's the more sort of like demanding parent who's sort of like, well, buck up, buckaroo. Like you can do this. This isn't that hard. Just get on out there. And the truth is what kids actually need actually lies in the middle. And we can talk about that in a, in a little bit too. But childhood anxiety is actually, for kids, it's their fear plus their reaction from their parents. And so, you know, if you think about like kids as a toddler, right? Like if your kid falls down, I mean, everybody knows this, like, right? If your kid falls down and you're like, oh my gosh, Jack, are you okay? Then the kid will start crying. Like they were fine until like you went and then they start bawling. But if not, if you're like, oh, let's go, let's go onto the slide. They're like, okay. And then they just sort of brush themselves off. And then that happens as they get older. But the issue is, and the reason why we need to be careful in what that response part is to the fear is Ellie Leibowitz out of Yale Child Study Center has a treatment called SPACE, which we can also talk about in a little bit. But he talks a lot about accommodations and accommodating kids' anxiety. And he talks about the cycle of accommodations. And what the cycle is, is if you have an event, let's say, I I like to use the example of a kid's birthday party, and your kid really doesn't want to go to the birthday party. They're like, I don't know who's going to be there. I feel like they don't like me. I don't want to go. Like they're anxious in some ways. And then a parent says, oh, well, I don't want you to be anxious, but I also want you to go. Because, right, like in our parent mind, like like the side conversation that's going on is, well, I don't want them to miss out. I don't want them to be the one on Monday morning when all the kids are talking about it. You know, if I don't let them go, then they're not being social. Well, at least they're being social if I make them go. So they're like, okay, let's go, but I'll, you know, I'll go with you. And, you know, and parents are thinking in their head, it's fine. I can accommodate this. I'll just hang out with the other parents in the, in the kitchen. You know, my friend needs some help cutting the cake anyways. It's good. So what ends up happening is in the short term, the anxiety goes down. The kid is able to go to the party. They're able to enjoy the party. Everything's fine for the short term. But in the long term, what happens to anxiety is inadvertently, the message that the kid has gotten is, you have something to be scared of. And mm. I don't think you can handle this. Totally inadvertently, right? Like it's 100% comes out of care, compassion, love. And so then what happens is next time something comes up that's hard, that feeling of anxiety broadens. It might transfer to other situations. So it might not just be the next birthday party where little Janie is saying, oh, well, not only do I need you to come to the birthday party, but I need you to be outside in the backyard with me. Or maybe it's like, I can't go on the field trip unless you're there, or I can't go to my friend's house unless you come. 
And so they end up needing to have more of that reassurance to be able to meet that feeling of how am I going to manage my anxiety because they can't tolerate that feeling. And we as parents haven't given them the message that we think they can handle it. Is there a maximally vulnerable age where you see that because I, I know we're going to get this question from mm-hmm. our listeners. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to get you to answer it because yeah. I am not equipped to answer it. Sure. Um, maybe Vanessa's. So big head nod, <laughs> no. Um, so is there an age at which you see maximum vulnerability? And if parents can step in at that point, it's more redirectable and solvable. And beyond which that point, you end up crossing this threshold into a kind of anxiety that will require treatment? Or is it personality dependent and temperament dependent and birth order dependent and parent style dependent and all of those other yeah, things? I think it has a lot to do with a lot of different things. And I, I don't think even if your kid is a young adult, that there isn't opportunities to step in and interact in a different way that can help them manage their anxiety. And, you know, certainly the sooner that you can step in and be aware of your child's temperament and be aware of how are you validating how they feel. And, you know, sometimes what happens is I think we we talk about validation, about, you know, how do you validate someone else's feelings? And I think that that is like near to an impossible task. There's these authors, Pat Harvey and Britt Rathbone, who wrote a book raising a teen who has intense emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. Pat Harvey has another one that's raising a a child with intense emotions. They're both really similar. But in that book, they have a line that says something like, validation is in the ear of the receiver, Mm -hmm. which I think is brilliant because, you know, we're different human beings. And so how do we actually know what the other person's thinking? So I say all this to say, There are things that people can be doing early on that will set the stage to be able to intervene along the way, but that doesn't mean you can't intervene at other times. Right. And the other thing is, I would imagine in your experience, when parents do try to give their kids permission to feel all the feels and go Mm -hmm. to the party without them and Mm -hmm. kind of go through, that it's not necessarily going to work out perfectly the first or second or third time. And so there's also a learning curve for the parents. It's not only not going to necessarily work out for the kid, the way the kid wants, it also might not work out the way the parent wants. And that's part of what's really tricky is how do you help your kids learn how to tolerate their own feelings and be willing to let them figure out how to tolerate it in the way that works for them? That's the piece that can be really hard. And I think it does come with really recognizing what's your kid's temperament. I think that that's really important. I think it comes at really focusing on what is your relationship with your child and how do you build that relationship with your child in a way that's like meaningful and authentic and where there's both structures and support and a foundation, but that you're not actually building the house. Jennifer Weaver, who also has her book coming out soon, Raising a Child Who Can, she talks about in there the idea of sculpting, like being a sculptor versus being a gardener, right? And so like you want to figure out how are you a gardener and watering the seeds and not a sculptor where you're trying to create your child into being who you think they should be. 
So Amy, let's give people an example. Okay. Let's use the example of your kid, your middle school kid is supposed to go to some weekend program. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I don't want to go because I don't know anyone and none of my friends are going and I'm so uncomfortable and why are you making me do this? And you don't listen to me. And I've told you this before, right? Like you're in that (laughs) charming cycle. What could or should a parent say that does this very tricky? Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. 
Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Attempt at validation while also getting your kid in a position to move through an uncomfortable but important experience. So I'll say a couple of things. One is it's always hard to address these issues, particularly around anxiety, by starting with the things that they're most anxious about. Mm. And it's hard to start with the things that feel big and weighty to you as a parent and feel big and weighty to the kid. Now, I'm not saying if you have that situation, you can't navigate it. I'm just saying, and we can talk about that specific situation. I'm just saying, if you feel like your kid is anxious, one of the things I like about space, and again, we can come back to it, is you start with the itty bitty stuff because when you make small itty bitty changes, it allows for greater gains out in front. But let's say your middle schoolers saying, I don't want to go on the weekend retreat and I don't know anybody. It's going to be really hard for me. One of the things that we talk about a lot in space are called supportive statements. And supportive statements is when you accept how your kid is feeling and like the validation piece, and you're wanting to give them confidence that they can handle it on their own. It's sort of like those two parenting styles coming together, right? The protective parent sees their kid. They're like, oh my gosh, this is really painful. You're really scared. Like, holy smokes. Going and doing something that's scary can be terrifying. And then you take the demanding buck up buckaroo kind of attitude and say, and I know you're going to be able to handle it. And it's not about like, you're going to be able to go to the retreat and have a good time and meet tons of friends. It's about, you can go to the retreat and tolerate those feelings of being very unsure, feeling, you know, self-conscious of being anxious about you know, how the friendships are are working out. And sometimes just stating that, just validating, just having a kid not feel like crazy for feeling that way is enough to get their nervous system sort of, you know, tamped down enough to be able to go. So Amy, can you just talk about space? And I made yes. the dumb joke before we got on. I don't mean <laughs> the moon and other planets. I mean, right. this program space and what it does and and how it's unique that would be yeah. that would be yeah good. and i'm sorry that i keep jumping to it i just i no 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 that's we are obsessed with it we're so okay. fascinated by it okay. um so okay. well, yes please and the reason why i keep bringing it up is because it's so effective okay so space stands for supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotions it was developed by this guy Ellie Leibowitz up at Yale Child Study Center he's amazing He is smart and compassionate, 
and clear and supportive. And he used the work of Hames Omar, who now that I'm saying it out loud, I don't know if it's Omar Hames or Hames Omar. Anyways, <laughs> if you guys ever had that moment. Um, anyways, well, come to time. my brain. <laughs> 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 who he did all this work on uh, nonviolent resistance and bringing that into the mental health world. So Ellie took that work and brought it into work with anxiety. And the whole premise around space is it's based on this foundation of, of a few things. One is this idea of if you take itty bitty steps, you can have greater gains out in front. It's also based on this idea, if you have a system, if you change any one thing in that system, the whole system changes. And it's based on this idea of the nonviolent resistance. How do, how do we decrease the intensity of emotion? How do we take the air out of the balloon so that we could go ahead and move forward? He took that and said, oh, well, if we know that anxiety is fear plus the reaction of the parents. And that's that's based on research that's been going on for like 50, 60, 70 years. Like, so if we take that, then if we can just change the reaction of the parents, it could actually change the other side of the equation and the childhood anxiety can go down. Which we all know from personal experience, right? right? That is the most obvious sentence that we all forget. Yeah, we all forget because it it makes sense as we're talking about it. But but when we're like living our lives, and let's be clear, I have two children who have anxiety. I am anxious on a good day. I mean, I live in a world of anxiety. We don't always get this right. And I'm not sure my kids would be happy, but I am happy to share with you many a story of where I did not do this right with my own kids. But Come sit by us, Amy. That's 50% <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> 50 is being very, very generous on the low end. <laughs> so, you know, he takes this idea and you're right, it is really simple. But then also as we're living our lives, we get caught up with all these other pieces and we can sort of understand it cognitively. But as you know, as you were saying before, Vanessa, like when your kid is in pain in any way, the visceral feeling you get inside, like I can't even talk about it without actually feeling it right now. You know, it makes you do different things. But so he took all those ideas and he came up with like two basic components that we use when we're using space. And first of all, space is just for the parents. We treat childhood anxiety by working with the parents. We do not work with the kids. We work Up to with- what age, Amy? Into young adulthood. So it has been shown to be effective for as young as like the toddlers all the way up, there's a failure to launch modality for space for, you know, people up into like their young 20s, mid 20s. And I just finished up work with a family who has a 25 year old. So a really good reminder, like a big spotlight to shine on the concept that the adults who are raising kids, even though those kids look like adults themselves, and some of them demand to be treated like adults and and are you know, insulted when they're not considered adults. Still, the data is very clear that the adult influence on those kids is primary, right? Yeah, especially when when they're at this place where 
you know, they might be demanding to be treated as adults, but they're really not functioning, right? Like maybe they're having a hard time keeping their their job. Maybe they're living at home and don't have a job. Maybe they can't get to school every day. Maybe they've had to come home from college um, for one reason or another and just sit in their room all day. Right. Maybe their executive function is just developmentally normal and is not where it is when you hit 30 and you're actually a very consequential thinker, right? Yeah. And the other thing, you know, you had asked me before about sort of how I've seen people, you know, these issues develop over the years. You know, I notice kids coming up younger and younger through the years. So a senior in Mm. 2020 was much sort of younger developmentally than when I saw someone in the year 2000. They just are growing up younger and younger. And so Ellie took all of these concepts and these ideas and he has, there's like two main components that parents learn with space. One is called supportive statements. And that's this idea of how do you provide validation and acceptance while also giving them confidence that not that they can get their homework done on their own, but that they can tolerate that anxious feeling and be able to get through that to be able to get to the other side. So that's one piece, supportive statements. And then the other is all about accommodations and how do you reduce those accommodations? And the accommodations is what we were talking about, like the birthday party or another very common one is your kid is texting you all day long and you respond. And so we would talk about that, not in terms of like, how are you going to stop your kid from texting you all day long, but how are you as parents going to handle what you're going to do on your end of it? I want to talk about this because we hear from parents all the time about this very, very specific issue. And they're like, they're like out to dinner and like, oh, my kid won't stop texting me. Just give me a second. I got to respond to this. Or like, you're in a work meeting and they're like, oh, you know, I, sorry, I got to deal with this or whatever it is. It's so common, mm-hmm. Amy. I'm dying to know your advice. And by accommodate, when you say accommodations, you don't mean academic accommodations. You mean accommodations yeah. specifically for kids' anxious feelings. Right. We need to be very clear about that because accommodations for learning disabilities, accommodations for ADHD, they have been shown to be able to help level the playing field. Those accommodations, if you have a math disorder that you need to have a calculator, that is an appropriate accommodation. Somehow along the way, we use that word. And in schools all the time, now people are, you know, quote unquote, accommodating anxiety by giving extra time, by giving additional days to get homework done. And somehow we've adopted that word for anxiety. But the truth is, research has shown over and over and over, accommodating anxiety actually just makes the anxiety get bigger, not smaller. Hmm. For the same reason that we just said around like that birthday party example, it gives the kid a message that they can't handle it. And it gives them the message that we don't have faith in them, that, that they can't handle it and that they have something to be scared of. So just to clarify even more, Mm -hmm. so would you say that the data supports the fact then that it's not just a parent kind of booing their kid up when their kid feels uncomfortable, but it's also the whole system we've put in place around 
kids with anxiety and including what happens in the schools? Is there a better way to help kids with, there are two kinds of anxiety, right? Lowercase a, uppercase Mm -hmm. a. So Mm -hmm. let's take the uppercase a, a child who's got anxiety that's interfering with their life. Is there a better way outside of the the home Mm -hmm. for the world in which these kids are operating to support them and to help them? Yeah. To get to that question by a little bit answering the question about the texting too, is this idea that one thing I like about space and and actually the folks up at Yale are doing a lot of work about space in schools. And we're going to have a training down here in DC around space in schools. Ellie's coming down here to do that. Is that there are ways for the adults to make changes in how they are responding to the kids. It is not Space is not about asking the kids to do anything. It's about what can you do? And so to the point about texting, and then we can talk about other adults too, is so there is something about saying to your kid, and in space, by the way, you don't just like stop accommodating. You actually tell your kid, right? Like you're going to treat your kid with some dignity Mm. and tell them you've realized that what you're doing isn't helping them with their worries and so that you are going to do something else. So actually, if they want to text you 5,000 times during the day, they can, but you're just letting them know that, you know, from nine to three or nine to five when you're in work, you're not going to be able to respond to their texts. I did that with my mother. (laughs) (laughs) It works for it works it for work? older parents as well it as worked. our children. It worked. It's funny, Kara, that you said that because I've heard people say that they use this concept around either using supportive statements or accommodations with a friend or with mm-hmm. with a coworker or with their mother, and it really works. And then it gives them the confidence, like, oh, actually, maybe I can do this with my kids too. Oh, that's and interesting. To answer, and to answer your question about them, what about other adults too? Yeah, in schools. First of all, schools are just beautiful communities, right? Like it's such like this microcosm community. Schools work so hard to make that a loving, caring place where kids can feel safe to learn and use those communities and use the connections between the parents and the kids wherever you can and give kids the message that they can handle it. It's actually okay if they are feeling anxious to sit and do the work that they need to do and feel anxious at the same time. And we have to be giving them the messages that it's okay if they get a C. Right. So Amy, I'm an 11th grade teacher. (laughs) And my students... You wear so many hats. I'm a a polymath. (laughs) Just wait till I play an 11-year-old kid. And... One of my students is a great kid, drives themselves really hard, is like really gunning for some very competitive colleges next year and comes to me in tears, Mm -hmm. in tears Mm -hmm. that they just can't get the essay done on time. It just they just can't do it, and they're at the end of their rope, and they're just freaking out, and it's just all too much. What do I say? Like applying space to the school's context? It's a really good question because part of what we need to remember is not all accommodations are unhealthy. Sometimes we need to take a little bit of the air out of the balloon to help people get their grounding again. And so for some people, 
some people who are having like that high level of anxiety, but maybe it's not big A anxiety. Like maybe it is really situational. Maybe they do like, maybe they're working 20 hours a week so that they could even have the possibility of going to college and they have some big AP exam and, you know, they're having soccer and maybe they really are to their limit and they really do care about their history paper. And they go and they're crying. I think it's okay to say like, sure, like let's take a little bit of the air out of the balloon. But the mistake happens when they're like, just get it whenever you can. Mm. Like, I wouldn't do that. I would say, okay, let's talk. When could you, could you get it by after the next weekend? How about next Monday? Does that work? And then hold to that date. The issue becomes when it's a little bit more like, you know, Every time there's a test, a kid is coming and saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. Can I please take it another time? Can I please take it this afternoon? Every single time. Once, like, okay, sometimes you need to just let a little air out of the... I mean, we all have that feeling, right? Like some days, I don't know, like I just need someone else bringing me my coffee. You know what I mean? Do you ever just wake up and you're like, oh... God, like there's five things that are happening today that I'm just like, are just sitting in my gut like a lead balloon. Right. And if someone could just take one of those things off, you're like, okay, I can do all these things. And then tomorrow I can do those five things and the other three that are on my back burner. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that's all you need. But what we're more talking about is when it's happening over and over and, and also when we are creating these opportunities for kids to be able to fall into that so easily. And so mm-hmm. that that's more what we're talking about. And the other thing to think about is like, what are all the different little small shifts that could happen, right? Like you might with a kid not start by saying, you can't ever have an extension. It might just be like, as long as you ask for an extension 24 hours in advance, you can have the extension. This whole conversation is making me think about an experience I had teaching a health education class. And it was not a sex education class. It was like a basic hygiene health education, fourth grade, very, very intro level. (laughs) And there were two kids who were terrified of the class. And I have no idea what the conversation was at home. Maybe it was, you know, the conflation of it's the first of these classes. It's going to be the talk. It's going to be about sex or it's going to be about periods or it's going to be about whatever. And it felt very big, but they were just in a complete state. And it wasn't drama. It felt very, very real to them. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget. I was I was relatively new to teaching, maybe in my first couple of years. And I watched this very seasoned teacher. And what she did was she said to the kids, I see how nervous you are. This is your class at school right now, but I'm going to put two chairs at the back and you can sit together. You do not need to sit in the front. You do not need to sit with the rest of the class. And if you need to leave the room, I'm just going to ask, let's come up with a signal and ask you to give me the signal and I'll walk outside in the hall with you for a minute and then we'll come back in. So what she did was exactly, I think, what you're describing, which was a sort of a partial accommodation. It was a gimme. It was saying, you can do this, but I'm going to give you some space and recognize that you're really nervous about it. And, you know, there are going to be times when it's not 
genuine. They just don't want to do something. You know, they just don't, they, you've got stuff going on at the house and you need them to clean the kitchen or do the laundry or whatever. And their excuses. And that's, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is when there's a real barrier in front of them and your experience in the schools in particular, I think speaks to your recognition that teachers are very loving people. You don't go into the profession of teaching without absolutely loving kids. And so when teachers see it in kids, I think they they become masterful at doing this. So I think the place that I'd like to land is this question. How can parents and teachers best communicate when one of those groups is able to see the anxiety and see some solutions that are working, but the other cannot. And in particular, I think it usually goes that the teachers are able to accommodate in subtle, slight ways so that they're not massively accommodating the kids. And sometimes the parents don't see it or can't, and the, and the teachers do. So how, what's your advice to the adults listening to the podcast who are raising kids? Mm-hmm. How you hear feedback from other adults who are seeing your kid, even if it's not feedback you want to hear. Yeah, you know, and that's tricky, right? I used to joke that I couldn't get through a parent-teacher conference without crying. Like, I really couldn't. You know, mostly it's like this really beautiful things that they're saying about your child. But I really couldn't because anytime someone would talk to my kid about my kid, I would automatically get emotional. It could be good. It could be not good. It didn't matter. I would get emotional and it was really hard. But the thing I think about is the same thing that I think about when I'm thinking about kids and parents is it's all about building relationships and figuring out how do you build those bridges. And in some schools, there just are not as many bridges between Mm. parents and, and teachers. And in other schools, they work really hard to make sure there is. Just like for every kid in a school building, I hope that they have at least one adult that they feel like they can be connected with and that they feel safe with and that supports them. I would hope that every parent has one person in the school building that feels the same. And many schools have support services, whether it's learning specialists and nurses and counselors. Sometimes there's coaches, there's there's other peripheral people who connect in. And sometimes it's that really special art teacher or science teacher. And maybe it's your teacher from last year, not this year, where you can go and say, listen, I'm hearing this stuff about my kid, like, but I'm more comfortable with you. Can you tell like can you just give me the real deal? And same with teachers, figuring out Who is this kid connected with? Who are these parents connected with? How can we talk? And the other thing is, in the same way that those supportive statements are all about feeling validated, if as a parent, like if you're in a school system and you're trying to connect in with the parent, you're wanting to to see them for who they are. They, If they are accommodating their kid, it is only out of love. If they're overly demanding of their kid, it's almost always all out of love. Parents, by and large, do what they do because they care about their kids, not for any other reason. Oh, so true. I mean, there's always a story, Amy, right? There's always a story behind how people are reacting, how they're managing situations. And if we start from a place of empathy and generosity of spirit and assume 
the teacher is trying their best to love and support a kid, that the parent is trying their best to encourage and support a kid rather than assuming everyone's doing a crappy job. You know, we all come to it with our stories. And I think understanding that and starting from that place allows us all to do a better job. When I think about things like this, like how do we how do we connect over difference or, or like school systems or even family systems, the values that I think about often are stability, like how, how are we creating stability? How are we doing what we're doing with integrity, right? How are we doing it with some humility? How are we doing it with some grace? And how are we doing it with collaboration? And those to me are those five values are the ones to me that help just sort of clear the way. And also this understanding that different people do things in different ways. We could have one goal, you know, and and the teacher could have a goal and, and maybe even the parents have different goals. And maybe there's a therapist involved in here too. We didn't even talk about that. There's definitely situations where parents, school and therapists all have different ideas, but everyone has the same goal. The issue is there's many paths to get to that goal. But if you keep going side to side through one path to another path to another path, you go side to side instead of moving forward. So it's really about how do you create that stability, do it with integrity, have some humility, be collaborative and do it with grace. And treat each other with dignity is the path forward to figure out how are we all getting on that same page. And that's what's good for kids is is how do we take that air out of the balloon? It gets back to what what I was saying about Ellie at the beginning around this nonviolent resistance. And if you have a system, if you change any one thing, the whole thing changes. And again, like these itty bitty steps. And what we know, what the research shows is if you can, if you can sort of chunk a little bit off and be able to handle that, help your kids be able to tolerate their emotions a little bit better, then they're going to be able, that's transferable to other things too. And then you give them more and more strength and then they're able to develop their sense of self. And the more they they are competent, more they have connections, the more they have autonomy, the better sense of self and more motivation they'll have on the inside, the better they'll feel about themselves and be able to move forward on that path on their own. That's a wonderful place to land, Amy. Thank you so much. Well, this has really been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with the two of you. (laughs) We will link in the show notes to all sorts of resources that you mentioned. It's an incredible thing to listen as wearing the parent hat and to think about what our role is, especially as our kids get older and how there's this philosophy of just get out of their way, right? And so how do we get out of their way and support them, not accommodate them at the same time? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com yet.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.